You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what's new and innovative in education. And today we're talking to Timothy Shriver, chairman of the Special Olympics, an organization originally founded by his mother, Eunice Kennedy Shriver, who is President John F. Kennedy's younger sister. Tim spent 15 years in public education as a teacher and helped establish the Social Development Project, as well as the Collaborative for Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning, better known as CASEL, which he also chairs. Tom asked him to share more about his interesting career pathway through education. Tim Shriver, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Thanks for having me. Tim, you have led an interesting life. Uh, Thank you. you, I think people may not know is that you've got quite a background in in education, public education. Uh, where, Where did that start? Well, you know, I started as uh, doing my practice teaching as an undergraduate in college. Uh, I ventured off campus and found myself in a comprehensive American public high school, observing teachers uh, in an urban environment. And uh, it took about five minutes in that school for me to realize this is where I wanted to be. The kids were mesmerizing. The teachers challenged me uh, to think in all kinds of new ways. The the energy in the building was, uh, you know, almost uh, palpable. You could feel it. Um, there was an incredible combination of desire and hunger and longing, but also anger and pain and frustration and disappointment. And I just found that to be uh, a sort of a central, um, you know, just a place where I felt comfortable that I wanted to learn from, I wanted to know more about. And so I started my career there, uh, first with the Upward Bound program at the University of Connecticut, and then in the New Haven Public Schools, and really thought a great deal about what could make a difference for kids coming from these environments. For kids who really wanted to learn, had all kinds of talent, incredible amounts of charm, but the system really wasn't wasn't working for them. Um, and the system included me, so I was frustrated and disappointed after a few years of scouting around for new ideas. What could I do differently? How could I connect better? Uh, and a handful of people converged at the same time in and around, in, in, in those days, the New Haven Public Schools, uh, James Comer, who had been right. doing pioneering work in child development, and, and I, a few I others. I was and, wondering if he yeah. was going to be part of the story. Was well, he, he, he wasn't just part of the story. He was the pivot for me. He, he shifted my lens from kind of uh, working harder than anybody to trying to work smarter, uh, from being a teacher to being a child developmental child developmentalist, from thinking about academic instruction to thinking about children. Right. Um, it was a dramatic shift for me. Uh, I couldn't have pinpointed it for you at the time, but uh, it was clear very quickly that to think about child development was a whole new approach to how to think about kids. Didn't have anything to do with the size of the school, the structure of the school, the income of the kids, the race, the color, the background. It had to do with the children and their developmental needs. And all of a sudden, New, uh, new options and insights emerged, and that's really the founding of the field of social and emotional learning yeah. came there, and the founding of CASEL, the organization which I, together with others, helped create and, and continue to believe in and work for today. No, that really, it really was the epicenter. I, when you look back at the Yale uh, Child Study Center, I, th- I think you can sort of pinpoint that as the, the beginning of modern uh, child psychology is that fair? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And going back well before my time, obviously. But uh, the idea of the child psychology, child psychiatry and medicine coming together and working together. And then the Child Study Center even brought in the legal teams and so on to create the field of 
legally informed child development knowledge, community policing began to come in there and start to think about how police work could be child developmentally informed. Well, you wouldn't have thought it would take a lot to inform educators about child development. You would have right. thought that's what we would be good at. But the truth is, not, almost none of us were prepared as child developmentalists. Almost none of us were taught child development in any significant way. Almost none of us were trained to see the markings of developmental, you know, positive development or the deviations from positive development to have an acute kind of clinical eye, if you will, for those signs, or to have the skills necessary to help children promote their development in anything other than, you know, we were all trained to teach history or English or social studies or mathematics or phys ed or art, not to teach children. Um, it was quite a dramatic shift. And I think the, the school educators as a field, we're still getting our head around this, the, the, the quite uh, expansive implications of thinking of schools as centers of development and teachers as facilitators of development. Um, it's quite a d different way of seeing the world. Uh, that it is. I, I want to come back to that in a second. Um, you, you earned a, a doctorate at uh, Connecticut. What was that in? I was in special education. It was in the School of Ed Psych. Uh, at that time, I was really interested in social competence. Uh, that, that kind of was the part of the ledger that most fascinated me. So I, was, uh, I did my PhD dissertation looking at the attitudes that children had towards peers with disabilities and how those attitudes wow. shaped relationships and behaviors yeah. in schools and could reduce bullying or could increase compassion. And so the underlying social qualities in inclusion, how children see them modeled by adults or fail to be modeled by adults and so on. That was kind of where I ended up focusing. So that uh, really, which, uh, that is a partial answer to my very last question about Special Olympics. Yeah, this, yeah, yeah. Where, where did that interest come from? Is that your mom in part? Yeah, that was my mom. I mean, I was a volunteer in high school. I was a volunteer in college. I was a volunteer after college in local Special Olympics programs. But then all of a sudden it occurred to me, geez, you know, this work in physical activity uh, between people with and without intellectual disabilities, it's really a teaching movement. It's, you know, people think of it as a sports movement or an event, but it sort of struck me in my mid-30s that this thing I was doing on the side was actually a powerful educational tool that we could teach grit because the grit necessary to survive even if you have special needs is extraordinary but often unseen. We could teach compassion. We could teach empathy. We could teach perseverance. We could teach inclusion. Uh, if we marshaled the gifts of people with intellectual disabilities and welcomed them into the mainstream of the school. So I began to see this with this lens of uh, as a developmentalist. I can't say I'm, an, I'm not a a trained developmentalist, but I think I'm a practiced developmentalist, I began to see that there was a whole uh, arena in which young people who had special needs could be seen as assets to the development, not just of their own development, but to the development of their non-disabled peers. And so I jumped over to Special Olympics. Most people say, well, geez, you had a career change, but actually nothing much changed in terms of my interests. I continued to be interested in how you could make schools and communities into places that support the beauty and uh, discovery of that beauty of every child. That's really what I've always been interested in. So this wonderful um, phrase that you had of school as the center of development, th this, these ideas were really new and fresh uh, 30 years ago, right? They were. I mean, in some ways, yes, Tom, they were. But, you know, you can find them in Dewey. 
Right. You can find them in Maria Montessori. You can find them in Vygotsky. You can find them in Jim Comer. So in some ways, what was new was that we as educators were starting to take them seriously. Right. Because if you ask most teachers, did they read Dewey? They'd say yes. Almost everybody reads Dewey if you go through a teaching program or an education program. What did you do with Dewey? Almost everybody says nothing. Right. <laughs> so well, Dewey's 100 plus, 120 years old. Some of his best writings, 110 years old. It's Some of it's not new, but taking it seriously as an educational science and a practiced curricular intervention, that was new. In fact, it still is new. Well, the frustrating thing, uh, I guess, for me in retrospect is the the, the beautiful consensus um, and focus on equity that begin to form in the early 90s, you know, flowered as the standards movement and was sort of stamped by the federal government as No Child Left Behind, um, had a, a well-intentioned bipartisan origin, but had all sorts of unintended consequences, including in part forgetting this idea about school as a center of development and just in so many places kind of a myopic focus on um, uh, literacy and numeracy and more even more narrowly on test prep. It, yeah. Right. So it, it feels like the, the, the wonderful thing that Roger Weisberg and I celebrate when we're together speaking is the, the rediscovery of this notion as school as center of, of development. I mean, I think that's right. I think the No Child Left Behind intention was to create a structure of accountability uh, for all kids. Um, it did do that. I, th I believe No Child Left Behind increased the extent to which educators feel that they have to produce results. And I don't personally, this may sound scandalous to some of my progressive friends, I don't think accountability is a bad thing. I just think we implemented it all wrong. Yeah. Uh, I think we made two primary mistakes. One is we narrowed the measures of accountability to, as you say, literacy, numeracy. Those are not bad measures. They're just not the only measures. And secondly, we forgot completely about the how. Uh, we began to think that the test was not just the measure, but was the input uh, into the educational process. So all of a sudden, relationships and uh, connective tissue and desire and motivation, uh, inspiration, all of a sudden were run out of the classroom as though those things were not important to creating the outcome. Uh, Roger is the master. He's shown that if you enhance relationships, if you increase stress management skills and cooperative uh, uh, learning skills and uh, uh, coping skills and these kinds of things, you increase test scores. Well, of course you do because children are more present. They're more motivated. They're more connected. They're more engaged. They feel safer. So, of course, they learn better. What we forgot in the 90s and in the early 2000s was is that uh, to produce a test score outcome might not be a bad thing, but how you do it will always be nested in the idea that relationships and inspiration have to be strong, that those are the building blocks even of test score improvements. So the, let's back to the uh, founding of CASEL, uh, the Collaborative for Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning. Yeah. Uh, that was quite a cast of characters. Um, to, tell us uh, about the founding. Well, we had a small group, you know, Eileen Growald and Dan Goldman. Dan was writing for the New York Times. He later became the author of the 
now uh, fabled uh, emotional intelligence book that uh, made the number one on the New York Times bestseller. The time he was writing in the New York Times, Eileen was looking at mind-body health and its implications for mind-body, if you will, education. And they chanced upon a bunch of people who were scratching around these issues. I was one of them. Uh, Linda Lantieri in New York was another. The folks out at the Fetzer Institute uh, were interested in this work, too. Um, and the next thing you know, um, a couple of us, Mark Greenberg was uh, out at the University of Washington, later came to run the Prevention Research Institute at, the, at Penn State. But uh, a bunch of us got on the phone and said, look, we, we can't just have meetings here. You know, we're those of us who are practitioners in this space. I was in the New Haven Public School. We need help. We're trying to improve the way we teach. We're trying to improve the outcomes for kids. We need to build a field here. And the scholars were like, well, we need more support and ideas. And so we said, let's let's create a collaborative. There was no Internet in those days. You know, so the, the idea of a collaborative was quite revolutionary. I mean, not to build an organization, but just to build uh, a group of scholars and practitioners who would work together to create a field. Um, and we got on the phone and, you know, Dan and some of those guys, they were really interested in the emotions. And I was very interested in social competence. I had already developed the job title of social development uh, supervisor in the New Haven schools. So I said, well, really what's important in education is the social context. And Dan said, well, really what's important in education is the emotional context. And we went back and forth on the phone with several of us and said, look, let's let's not worry about this. Let's just call it social and emotional learning. Okay, fine. That sounds like a good compromise. Uh, we're, we're not focused as much on uh, the academic piece of the picture, not because it's not crucial, but because the social and emotional pieces have been neglected. So let's ramp those up. Let's figure out how we can help teachers, educators, principals, school leaders, how they, we can help them focus with the best available knowledge with evidence on the social and emotional dimensions of learning. And so we created CASEL as a collaborative. Uh, to promote the integration of academic, social, and emotional learning as a way of optimizing the learning for all kids. It was just that simple, just a bunch of folks saying, let's work together. So almost 25 years later, it it must be uh, gratifying to be so front and center in the American education dialogue. I mean, it's enormously exciting. I personally never anticipated that there'd be so much interest in social and emotional learning. I guess I felt like we'd always be a small, you know, like one of that, that Margaret Mead quote, a small band of committed uh, citizens doing our thing. I, I never quite felt um, that we would uh, break through. But I would say not we, but I, I'd say the field has found its footing now. We have cities all, I mean, all over the United States where superintendents, mayors, school boards, city councils are coming together, teachers, unions. Um, principals organizations coming together and saying, let's, let's, we see now the data, we, we are reminded of what we, I hear this, so you're reminding us of what we always knew, but never had the language or the practice to pursue. We, we always knew it was about children. We always knew we had to have strong relationships. We always knew that motivation and inspiration were important, but we never had the tools. Now you're giving us the tools to work on those areas, integrate them into the life of the school use those tools to reduce behavior problems and other negative outcomes for children, but also use those tools to enhance academic learning. So it's a win-win, you know, and people are finally waking up and going, wow, this is common sense. But as Jim Comer said to me 30 years ago, it's uncommon common sense. 
Tom asked Tim to dive deeper into the acceptance of social-emotional learning in education and how the momentum of its rise in popularity seems to have overrun the infrastructure, creating competing ways to describe the desired outcomes and outpacing the development of a reliable measurement system. Well, I th here's the good news. I think people are recognizing this is not an educational fad. Uh, this is an educational philosophy, uh, and it's resonant in, in the minds of teachers and principals at a very, very high level. So there's right. an intuitive grasp that this is an approach that we all want and must uh, strengthen. Uh, the bad news is that as people are awakening to this possibility, you're right, the supply of high-quality evidence-based trainers is not as good as it should be. The supply of public policy frameworks is not as crisp as it might be, including assessment tools. Um, there are great differences of opinion about the kinds of sequences that ought to be promoted, the kinds of balance between academic and social and emotional uh, allotments of time, the balance between didactic instruction and skills versus more holistic uh, approach to school culture and climate and community and family engagement. So we're a young field. Uh, uh, think I think of us as you know maybe you know science around the time of Newton or something right. like that. There, there's a long way to go in physics, right? Yeah. When, no, we're, when I Newton think we're, developed his early laws, but we're Newton just coming. A lot. He knew a lot. Just coming um, out of the bloodletting and leeches phase. That's right. That's right. right. That's right. But there's it's very exciting. I it, mean, it I, is. I exciting. can't tell you how when I meet with teachers. I was in Youngstown last week and Dallas two weeks ago. I mean, large, very New York City, uh, over a thousand principals a few a few weeks before that. Uh, the hunger to get to work to use these strategies to focus on high quality rigorous programming not to sort of buy something off the shelf and slap it in and then wait for it to fail i mean the old resistance of school reform that's so deeply ingrained in many educators we're i think getting over that because people are seeing this is not a, not a quick fix but a a, a real significant uh, shift uh, and a and a very fruitful one too uh, an interesting, slightly ironic um, twist is that I, I've been studying the implications of artificial intelligence, which has uh, similarly, perhaps even more so, reached a state of media hype. And right, what what we know about the, or what we can surmise in the early days of the rise of artificial intelligence is when you think about the implications of what young people need to know and be able to do it interestingly points back to social and emotional learning that it's uh -huh. these very yeah. traits of being most human to regulate ourselves, to read social situations, to be able to collaborate well with others. It seems clear that these skills will be more important than ever in life with smart machines. Well, not only uh, in life with smart machines, uh, Tom, but also across the whole, a whole range of employment. I mean, we've got the business roundtable and, Companies like IBM and others uh, who are saying, "Look, these are the employees we want. We want employees who know how to work on a team. We know how to. We want employees who are motivated uh, and and self-directed learners. We want employees uh, who are reliable and who have character and decency and compassion. We want, you know, we can find coders. The the guys at Google say, "Look, we can find uh, uh, code writers, uh, but we need a certain kind of person where who's who's got the capacity to code." Yes. But, but now what we're looking for really are social and emotional qualities right. that make this person capable of adding enormous value to our company. So 
again, I think employers are coming to this in much the way, same way educators are. It's like, well, we've always wanted people with character and decency. We've always wanted people who are reliable. We've always wanted people who are good listeners. We've always wanted people who are good problem solvers, who are creative, who are team players. But we maybe didn't spell it out quite the way we should. Right. And we didn't give educators the benefit of telling them that these are the things we want from your graduates. And in this day and age, when, you know, let's be honest, uh, community structures, uh, social norms, traditional values, some of these things have frayed quite a bit. And there's quite a lot of uh, variety in terms of how uh, young people are growing up. And there's not as many uh, supports for young people as there were. We don't have to bemoan that, but we ought to know it and recognize it and respond to it and, and give kids the benefit of schools where some of these basics are reintroduced in a more specific and a more uh, successful way. But the exciting thing, Tim, is that it, we we have conversations with school communities around the country, and when you ask them, how has the world changed? What do young people need to know and be able to do? They always talk about social and emotional learning. It, That's right. Rich or resource uh, poor, right. every community conversation points to these as being important outcomes. So educators can be confident that their community uh, would make these a priority if they engage in that conversation. I think that's right. And uh, I think that, you know, when we look at the numbers, the support for this is over 90% in teachers, over 90% in school principals. Uh, uh, the recently released uh, Fidel de Kappen poll shows this, these issues as uh, even amongst the general public. Uh, as through the roof in terms of importance. So, you know, you're, the point you made earlier is, okay, wait a second, the, the world has shifted and people are awake. And the question is how quickly can the scholars, the curriculum developers, the teacher educators, how quickly can we ramp up our capacity to prepare and respond to the demand? And that's the challenge we're facing right now. We've got our as you know, the Aspen Institute's convened a national commission, uh, Governor John Engler, the former governor of Michigan, Linda Darling-Hammond, the legendary educator from Stanford, and, and myself, and, and almost 100 other people, funders, uh, community partners, parents, youth counselors, scientists, educators, all working together on this thing, uh, going around, look at models, uh, collaborating on uh, new paradigms and, you know, consensus statements that uh, will help to clarify the science, help clarify evidence, help clarify accountability standards. So it's a very exciting time to be putting, if you will, this this little movement. Maybe it was a little rowboat, but we're, you know, we got a big engine on it now. And, you know, we're we're quickly uh, expanding the frame uh, and we got a lot of people helping and it's a very exciting time. You, you had a June meeting of the commission. What were the, some of the takeaways from that meeting? Uh, well, the first thing uh, I, I would say is that when we were in a, a district like Cleveland, uh, Cleveland uh, you know, has many of the assets of a great American city and many of the challenges of a great American city. Uh, the kids in Cleveland who have benefited from many years of social and emotional focus in their education uh, are stunning. I mean, we met, uh, I met a young man at one of the high schools who was doing a very significant academically grounded senior research project on police violence. Uh, he'd read 52 scholarly articles. This is a high school kid, wow. 52 scholarly articles on, in the field. Um, but he'd also uh, internalized uh, and focused uh, his questions on his own experience, his own experience growing up in a neighborhood in which 
the antagonisms toward the police were significant, as well as the uh, crimes committed by the police were, were quite painful. So he was writing uh, about justice and equality, uh, about fear and freedom, uh, with a kind of tenderness and a clarity and an and a inspiration that I don't ever remember, frankly, having in, in my uh, kindergarten through 12, and not often seeing, honestly. So he'd been invited not just to study history or social sciences, but to live it, to own the future, to project a different path forward, all on the same time. So he was a better scholar than he otherwise would have been, but he was also a more inspired and motivated potential citizen than I think he might otherwise have been. So we saw a lot of that at the, at the last visit. We saw a lot of messaging. You know, we started out the commission uh, with our plan at the end of two years to bring a report to the nation. Um, the teachers and, uh, and the principals on the commission said, you got to guys stop, stop talking about a report to the nation. This should be a report from the nation. Because the nation is working in this area. The nation is acting in this space. The teachers are, are are demanding this. This is not a report to them. This is a report from them. So that shift was, was you know, so exciting, you know, to recognize that what we were doing was not, you know, coming from on high from Washington, D.C. or Stanford or Yale or someplace like that to tell people what to believe, but rather unlocking the natural desire that uh, families children and teachers and, and educators have around the country and giving them voice and platform to announce to the country that this is where we're headed. Do you think a year from now, as the as that commission wraps up, that w one of the contributions will be a bit more clarity on language and measures and practices? I, 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 think, that, I, think, I think there'll be clarity on language. There'll be some clarity, I hope, on practices, although that's coming from many, many different quarters already. Uh, I think there'll be some very powerful statements on assessment and state, state level and district level policy frameworks that are necessary. I think there'll be a lot of clarity about the future of teacher preparation. I mean, it's, we're not the first folks to look at that issue, and a lot of people have made a lot of progress on it. Uh, but Jim Comer says over and over again, until teachers are child development professionals, we're not going to make the difference we need to make. So we're going to have some strong statements about both pre-service and in-service training for teachers. I think maybe most importantly what will come from that report is probably 100 to 200 leaders from all over the country, from politics, education, business, philanthropy, all singing with the same voice. Uh, not a bunch of, not a cacophony of uh, folks coming at this issue in different ways, but rather a coalition. Uh, we're excited uh, about the work the commission's doing and looking forward to, to those kind of outcomes as well. Um, we, we look forward to and, and input. So keep in mind, both for your listeners and for your team, uh, the commission is trying to cast a wide net. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm talking to one of the people who knows as much about how to use leverage to change schools as anybody on earth. So we want your input, not just your, your, your ears. <laughs> Um, Tim, one of our um, some of our friends uh, run Global Dignity Day, and that's coming up uh, October 18. It's really a global celebration of uh, schools that really believe all lives matter. Yeah, it feels like there's a really close link to uh, your life's work in in both uh, special education uh, and social emotional learning. 
any thoughts on the on the idea of dignity? You know, I, I, I talked for many years about a dignity revolution. Um, I, I do think there is a part of every human being that wants to see beauty and dignity in every other human being. And sadly, that part of us, the eyes with which we see dignity in others, the hearts that are open to the dignity of others, those things too often get closed. They become scared. They become antagonistic. And, and we lose our capacity to see one another uh, with dignity and as people of dignity. Um, my hope is that this field, the, the field of social and emotional learning, by shifting the language from deficit models and uh, and disengagement models and many of the ways in which we talk about kids, which are so rooted in negatives, that we can begin to talk about the development and competence and skill and giftedness of kids, that we want to enhance and promote that development, that giftedness, that competence. And that when we start to talk competence and gifts, we quickly come to the place where we see everybody is having gifts and everybody is having competence. Not the same, God forbid, not the same, but gifted nonetheless. Um, and I think sometimes it takes uh, a new framing. Uh, and as I say to my kids, a lot of times it's not what you go look for, it's how you look. Uh, it's not that we need to see new things, we need to see with new eyes. Uh, I hope Global Dignity Day uh, will help remind educators around the world that sometimes it's us. You know, one teacher said to me the other day at, at one of these uh, commission meetings, every problem in schools is an adult problem. Every problem, I said, what, every problem, yeah, every problem is an adult problem. Uh, if we thought of ourselves as the folks who need to see differently, I think we would see in our kids a lot more possibilities than we do today. And as a result, they too would see that in themselves. So um, I hope that uh, the work in Special Olympics around inclusive uh, climates and cultures in schools and the work of social emotional learning um, professionals as we try to give schools the tools to teach empathy and inclusion and grit and compassion and dignity. I hope uh, these things will all convene in a very uh, positive way to help strengthen. You know, uh, I think this was the song I like to say, or I shouldn't say I like to say, I'm, I'm actually sort of heartbroken to say that this is probably going to end up being the summer of Charlottesville right. uh, in this country. Um, uh, I hope that soon we will look back and say that um, uh, things have changed dramatically. And I think if we if we are able to say things have changed dramatically, it will be because educators and y young people and families made the decision to opt for dignity, to opt for connection, uh, to opt for inspiration uh, from in schools. I don't see any other institution capable of changing the country. Uh, I think schools can do it, and I think dignity is the message for them. It's a beautiful statement about dignity, and it, it really does, um, as we wrap this up, it, it does, for me, draw the, the link between social-emotional learning and, and Special Olympics to causes that that you care a lot about uh you know both both causes are about trying to get to the point where we can connect and communicate to every child that they're more beautiful than they can possibly believe and that we want to create a world where everybody has a place and that's what schools ought to be about honestly yeah the math the reading are necessary 
but they will come. The scores will increase. The scores will go up when we teach the whole child and when we teach every child to value themselves and others and to connect with uh, their best selves and with the people around them in ways that are safe and positive, challenging, tough, yes, but ultimately uh, in a way that says to them that, they, that the, the culture that we want to create communities where everybody has a place. And um, I mean, in a way, that's the American uh, experiment. You know, sometimes we don't look like we're doing very good at it, but other times, take a step back, we can realize I think we've got a lot to build on in this country. Uh, and I think our kids are the most precious resource right now, not for 10, 20 years from now, but right now, to building a more uh, welcoming and a more inclusive and a more just and, a, and I dare say a more joyful future. Tim Shriver, Chair of Castle and Special Olympics, it's been an honor and a privilege to have you on the Getting Smart podcast. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. Thanks to Tim Shriver for speaking with us today and to Tom for another great interview. Be sure to check out the Getting Smart podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, subscribe and rate us. For more on all things innovations and learning, check out our blog as well at gettingsmart.com. For the Getting Smart podcast, this is Kat. Signing